Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Lauren Gate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. Perhaps I should teach you to talk, Laura. This is Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm recovering from kidney stones for our listeners, and apparently I'm still a little loopy from the pain meds since I forgot the name of the show. <laughs> well, I'll it be came fine. back. Good. Yeah, it came back after a little pause. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I don't want to... Uh, Discuss my private medical conditions on air, so we will just leave okay. it at that. But I am okay. feeling much better today. How are you? I'm doing well, except for my woes of battling with the state on getting reimbursed. But oh well, that too will pass. <laughs> yeah, we probably could. We could do I a could whole do, show about I that, but we're week, not. I could do a week of shows on that. <laughs> but we're not. There you go. Live talk radio would bleep out about half of it, so that wouldn't be much of a show, I guess. I know. Thanks for they're not really uh, having therapists try to bill insurance and collect the money themselves, and where they still get to have more than a couple of therapists on a team, where everybody still gets PTOTDI and speech. Ah, those were the days, huh? Enjoy it while it lasts. If you're one of the fortunate few who's still in one of those states, enjoy it now because I fear your your system will change as well. So I know it's too bad. It's really too bad. Well, that's kind of what today's um, show is about. We're going to be taking and talking about all of the questions that seem really consistent from conference to conference to conference. So it's so many questions that I'm asked, it doesn't matter if I'm in Atlanta or Chicago or all the places in between, therapists struggle with the same topics. And so, and I almost always get the questions that we're talking about today at every conference. Now, here's the deal. We're going to go fast on these. We're not going to have one question per show like we do sometimes because all of these I think we've talked about in one form or another, maybe not on the show recently, but I've certainly talked about them again through the fall uh, with my conferences this fall. And, again, it is it – is, it's not funny. That's the wrong word. It is uh, amazing how – we all have the same questions and the same hurdles and that sort of thing. Reimbursement is certainly one of those, but again, we are not going to talk about that on today's show because oh, that heaven really knows is. I wouldn't be qualified because I perceive <laughs> I'm really bad at being reimbursed, particularly lately. Oh well. Okay. Yeah. So we're going through. Yeah. Class. We're going through questions. And let me just, a big shout-out to all the people who were in Chicago last Thursday and Friday. What a group. They were (laughs) so fun. And you know how at the beginning of the conference I say, it's going to be really boring if I'm the only one talking. So feel free to interject a comment or a question. or Oh, my goodness. They were chatty. (laughs) It was fun. That does not come as a surprise to me because that is my (laughs) stomping ground. And we are generally not a shy lot, okay? 
Give us, give us the floor. Except, of course, me. Don't put me in front of the room. But if I can sit in the room and engage in some banter back and forth, you bet I will. Oh, and, and there is analytical. Day. Yes, I did. And there is analytical as I am about watching therapy clips. It was funny the girls who would raise their hands and say, "Well, I didn't take that like that with this kid. This is what I would think." And I always appreciate their opinion and their input. But I would kind of end with. Uh, I've been seeing this kid for a year, and that wasn't it. This is what was going on with that kid. And that just goes, I mean, that's the same here on the podcast when we get questions or a question on the website at teachmetotalk.com or anything because, you don't. we don't, you know, if we're taking a situation and we take lift it completely out of context like all of those video clips are, Without the background, I mean, you could you could go ten different ways, you know, with one kit. And again, my point about that is that's what makes this job so fun because it's not a one size fits all. It's not a one you only have one solution and that is right and everything else is wrong, or you know, just the variability from kid to kid. And with working with little ones like we do in birth to three and just beyond. It's not even a kid-to-kid issue. It's a session-to-session or a minute-to-minute issue because sometimes what works with one kid one time doesn't necessarily work the next week. But, again, that's a great part about our jobs. It's not boring. It's not assembly line. It's not anything that you can sleep through. It's, you know, again, gives me a real charge to get up in the morning with, you know, kind of, new opportunities that we're going to have today. So, again, let me just kind of preface all of these questions by saying that, too. There's not only there's not always one right answer. Now, sometimes there are some wrong answers, and, boy, we aren't shy about saying that, are we? Generally <laughs> not. Things no. don't work, and I do think that's a lesson I've really learned this fall, too, is sometimes people are really put off by that when I'm saying, I don't think this is how you should do it, and here's why. I don't know if it's because their toes are a little stepped on or they felt a little offended. And sometimes I joke about things when I'm I'm joking about it and laughing about it, but I'm not really being um, in my heart of hearts mean about it or obnoxious. And I think sometimes people don't always get that. And I guess some people don't know you or when they have it. Right. Well, and heaven knows I'm guilty of that because I really care very deeply about my job. I really enjoy it. I really, it means a whole, whole lot to me. I think it's a big part of how I define myself, and yet sometimes I come off as pretty flippant and, oh, yeah, whatever, and really that's not how I feel, but that is kind of my personality, so we'll try and temper it. But and that might be one of the only things that we have in common. And I do talk about sometimes when people say, oh, and listen, let me tell you, you have some big fans in Chicago. One person said, started her question with, I'm a Kate. And she was, she's a developmental therapist, and she was asking a question, and she was between the breaks or, between, you know, during the break, she told me how, how she listens to the show, and she said, direct quote, I am in the Kate Hensler Fans Club. And I said, oh. me too. <laughs> So it was a lot of fun to talk to her, but she said it's so great to hear a DT talk about how important all the communication stuff is, plus the prerequisite stuff, the social stuff, the cognitive stuff, and be able to tie it together and not just be, uh, well, I'm a DT, I'm a DI, I don't work on that, or that's not my job. And she really liked 
how um, you address things. And she's also from your part of the world, so she loves your honesty and your take on things. My shoot from the hip, call it like I see it approach. Yeah, the same approach that offends the other 85%. Yeah. Don't take me seriously. I just say it that way. It's really not how I mean it. I know, but it is, yeah, but she she was so sweet. And she had even said that to Johnny at the signing table. I had already come in the room and by the time that she signed in, and so I didn't meet her until the break. And she, that's how she introduced herself to Johnny, too, because he came up to me at the first break and said, oh, somebody is talking about Kate. Let's find her. And I said, oh, I've already talked to her. And so that was really cool. And it was, it was uh, he thought it was great, too. So I wanted to, I've already told you that story, but I wanted to share it on air. Oh, um, because you do such a great job, so wanted to to pass along that love I received on your behalf. Well, if and she's again, listening, hello out there in the region. I'm glad somebody gets me. <laughs> <laughs> she totally does. She totally does. All right, so let's talk about what some of these questions are. And again, there uh, sometimes there's a wrong answer. And and we're sharing that just, again, so that you can benefit from our mistakes. And that's how we know that it's wrong, because we've done a lot of these things and figured out that does not work. There's got to be a better way. And that's sometimes, too, something that we don't always say and that people might not infer. Uh, But some of these mistakes that we talk about, again, it's from firsthand knowledge with doing it that way and then figuring out, oh, that doesn't work, or hearing somebody else talk about it, or learning, you know, whether it be at a conference or a book. I'm a huge reader of other people's work and kind of assimilating that information and figuring out, oh, that's why that didn't work with that kid. Here's the reason why. So, again, I want to be sure that I'm sharing that. And, Kate, I hope you'll remind me in all future shows to kind of share that, too, because I do think it will lessen the blow for some of our friends who feel a little bit offended when they're and not understanding um, uh, that we absolutely love what we do and that when we're talking about don't do this, it's not because we're saying they're stupid or whatever. It's that we've done it the wrong way and have figured out a better way to do it. So there you go. All right. So the first question that almost everybody asks me, and if they don't say it out loud in the conference, at least one person one time in a two-day event will ask me this. A lot of times it's four or five people. And it it didn't happen. It happened this year a lot on day two of the conference, which was the building verbal imitation and toddler's part, the expressive part. And it almost always came from a person who only came to day two. They didn't do day one of the conference, which is early speech language development, taking theory to the floor. And in that whole day one, we talk a lot about the prerequisites that a child has to achieve before he or she is really developmentally ready to talk and or use signs or gestures, which comes just before talking. And so this is the question. Someone will say, I have a kid. I've only been able to get her to sign more a couple of times, it, you know, and it, sometimes she'll, they'll say, it wasn't e- even this week, it was like three weeks ago, but I haven't gotten her three months ago, and I haven't gotten her to sign more. What else can I try? 
And so for when this when somebody is brave enough to ask me this out loud in a conference, I almost always say, Did you come to day one? Because we spent a lot of day one talking about this. Uh and again, it's not to belittle anybody, it's just to say, Boy, oh boy, this is not gonna be easy to answer in a minute because there are so many things to talk about when this issue is going on with a child. And I believe that when we see a sign like that just a couple of times and we don't see it again, it's because the child doesn't really, didn't own it, didn't master it, didn't generalize it, didn't really even learn it for whatever reason. And so that tells us a lot of things. First of all, that we didn't probably didn't make it meaningful enough for them to remember it and that we didn't get it enough on the first day. And I think that math practice piece is critical so that any new word, new sign, new skill, whatever it is, new sound, you have to get it a lot on the very first time you finally get it or elicit it or it's just going to be a fleeting skill. And so that's what I think goes on a lot is that, that we we don't get it reinforced and really help the child own it, as I say, or learn it or know it on that first day, so that's fine. We may not be able to see it again. Uh, your thoughts on that, Kate, before I give option two on why that may not have worked? Uh, well, I would guess a couple things as I read it, I thought. I wonder how engaged this kid is. I mean, how, right. uh, you know, how effectively is she holding his attention? Um, has she used food because heaven only knows i've had a lot of kids that really only sign for more for whatever oreos or fish crackers or fill in the blank cheese balls Uh, (laughs) fill in the blank for the junk food it's a personal thing you got to go with what they like um so those would be my two things you know how engaged is the kid generally are you really, if toys aren't getting it, try movement. If movement isn't getting it, try the social routines. If You know, just keep firing at them what seems to be the most effective. What's he smiling with? What's he laughing with? What's he got good eye contact with? Those things are going to be the things that elicit um, his ability to use that more on a more consistent, the sign for more on a more consistent basis and go right with those things and see if you don't get a better response. Absolutely. So what you're saying is you've got to really be careful about picking your motivators. And so what happens, I think, a lot of times is we'll do something really fun or that a kid likes, and they sign more a couple of times, and then we forget about what made them sign more in the first place the next time we go. And either we don't use the same activity or food or, you know, whatever elicited that, you immediately think, well, they've signed more, so let me get them to do it in the new context. And the issue there is we haven't paid enough attention to the motivators. And so we have to, some, with some kids, again, it takes a lot of detective work, like you were just talking about, to uncover what they like, and it can change from session to session. So I really have had a child who might eat, you know, 30 cracker one session and then suddenly when I bring that out the next week he doesn't like that anymore you know he's on his little food jag he's really moved or on they from just that. ate breakfast they're not hungry so forget that exactly yep. so it is really a case of figuring out okay what about that first 
time that I got it, what was it? Was it because we were putting them in a blanket and they really liked the movement? Not, was it because I had a cool STEMI toy? And by that I, mean, I usually mean a, story, a toy, a toy, golly, a toy that moves. That's what we should call STEMI toys, toys, shouldn't we? That's <laughs> anyway, don't get offended by that, people. Um, the we, Heaven we, knows we love our city choice. <laughs> yeah, but we're not paying attention to what about the activity that we did last time, and we're trying to get a kid to generalize too fast, so we don't go back to what worked the first time, or we don't figure out what was it, or we may be a little off in our right. own heightened affect or level of engagement, so we're not trying quite as hard, or we don't make it as fun. It turns into a little bit of a power struggle because it's a lot of pressure because you're feeling like, heck, gum it, you signed this two weeks ago, and now you won't sign. What is wrong? I know and you can you, do it. You did it before, yeah. and we, yeah. we feel your pain on that. We have all been there. You know, sometimes, Laura, I think it may be that, and this is probably not as common, but Perhaps the day you got it was that just aha perfect day. Maybe he'd been outside and running for a long time right. before you got there. Maybe mm-hmm. you saw him in the afternoon and he had a great nap, and then they, you know, usually exactly. I, yeah, uh, it has a lot to do with where they are, where their arousal level is. And I would question, like, on a kid like that, what's his typical demeanor when you see him? Is he a flat kid? Is he? And by right. that I mean, does he? Does it take a lot to get his motor running? Does he seem a to be really yes. yeah. And Those kids, a lot of times, if they've had that movement before you get there, they're in kind of that just right place as you arrive, and you have that, oh, he's got it. And then the next week, maybe he slept late and he's just out of bed and he's kind of lumpy, and you're looking at him thinking, wait a minute, you loved this three weeks ago, you know, right. but he's not really with you enough to enjoy it. Exactly. And so you've got to pay attention and tease all of those things out. I mean, it could be those things with the kid. It could be the, the factors that we talked about with you, you know, with with us as therapists and that we're not, again, paying attention to the other things like we could, you know, it could be any of that. So you've got to really, there's no one right answer for any particular kid or, you know, for all kids, you know, for any particular kid, you're just going to have to figure out what happened and see if you can duplicate that. The other thing is it almost always tells you that they didn't really have it that that first week or they would have, again, because of circumstances, because of how they're wired, because it's going to take, you know, 8,000 presentations instead of 800 or 80 or 8, like you would expect with a typically de- a more typically developing kid, um, to get it, you're just going to have to keep on and make subtle changes and see what happens after that. And this kind of leads to the next question, and so I'm going to go ahead with it. Somebody will say, and this is, I got this question every time in Atlanta, in Columbus, in Chicago, both times, in in one way or another on day one. Someone would say, okay, I get that. There are some kids who are not developmentally ready to talk yet. All right, I get that. But how does it look? How does your session differ with those kinds of kids in what you're doing and in the activities that you're using when you are working on social and receptive prerequisites? Because I spend a lot of time on day one talking about we have to make sure, first of all, that children are 
socially engaged and interactive with us. But that's our number one foundational skill. And if they're not, you can work on this other stuff to the cows come home, but it's not really going to be as effective or productive, and you're going to waste a lot of time unless you start where a kid is developmentally. And for so many of our little friends, especially those who are at risk to be diagnosed with autism, we have to start by looking at that social interaction piece. And then that next little piece is making sure they understand language or looking at their receptive language. So the question is always, okay, I get that, but do you still do the same activities? You know, what? how do you change your therapy session? Uh, what, what, what does it look like? And I have a couple of different answers for that. First of all, for Sometimes you don't really change some of the toys that you're using or your presentation or even what you say when you're using the toy, but what you are changing are your expectations for the child. So instead of expecting a child to say, if you're playing with uh, Fisher-Price Whirly racetrack toy, you know, the one I'm talking about, Kate, the one that has the two tracks, So if you're playing with that with a kid that you're just really working on social goals and receptive goals, you're not going, you're still going to be saying, ready, set, go, and car, and go, 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 and all the same things that you would hopefully be saying with an expressive kid and then wanting them to imitate or repeat or pop out that word on their own. But even if you're using the same toy with a kid that you're working on social skills, you're just looking for a social skill as your woohoo, we met the goal, this is what I expected you to do today. And those social skills would be staying with you through the whole activity, you know, or at least more than a time or two. It would be looking at you and then looking back at the toy and then looking back at you. That's called joint attention. So you're looking for that. It would be if you were looking at his receptive language and his cognition, it would be that he understands how to push the lever, or when you're saying, push, push, make the cars go, push, that he would do that, that he would participate in that. And that's your measure of success. That's your measure of, oh, my goodness, we're making some progress toward our goals here. The goal isn't, the benchmark isn't always, did he say go, or did he sign car, or whatever. You're still using that same activity. You're just looking for and facilitating and expecting different things. You're also pointing that out to his or her mom. It's with you during this session so that she knows, look, it's not always about talking yet. You know, talking is our long-term goal, but we're not there yet. We're going to be looking at making sure he's socially responsive and that he's coming along with cognition and receptive language, you know, and so that we're addressing those same goals within that same activity and not pushing always for that expressive response. Other ideas for that receptive would be that we say, get the car, and he reaches down and gets the car. Or put it in, and he himself is able to get the car in a little slot and get it ready to go down. Or that for some kids, it's just that they visually track the car on the way down, that they're not hyper-focused on the lever. You know, and we always say about this, Kate, you know, that's a kid who's stuck on a cause. He gets the cause. He just doesn't get the effect. He doesn't care if the car comes down and he pushes the lever. He's just stuck on pushing the lever. And so for those kinds of kids, you know, you're not looking for them to say or sign car or go. I mean, that would be great if they did. That's a gift when that happens. But way before that, you want to see all these other little things come in first. And so you might not change all of your activities with those kids, 
but you change your focus and you change what you define as progress or what you define as the goal, you're just looking for different things. Does that make sense as an answer to that question? It does to me. Yeah, and I think sometimes therapists will come and they'll hear me talk about, you know, I spend the better part of day one, the whole morning anyway, talking about social stuff and then receptive is our next area and that, you know, goes spills forth even until after lunch. And so sometimes I think they think, okay, you've convinced me to do that, but what what do I do? How, how do I accomplish that? And we spend some time talking about social games and social routines. And if this is the very first time you've listened to the show, that may be a new term for you. But social routines are any little parent-child routine or adult-led routine or adult. Uh, it doesn't have to be adult-led. I mean, children can initiate these things too. But those little traditional games like peek-a-boo, patty cake, or ring around the rosy, or anything that you, any little game that you might invent that a child really likes that helps them stay with you. And again, we want all children who are in speech and developmental therapy to talk but also not at that level yet. And for some of our guys, we have to go back to the social game level or just teaching them how to interact with us and want to be with us and, you know, that initial social spark and response, and that's best addressed for lots of our kids through those social games. And so while you're playing those social games, the, the goal is not always, I want you to talk, I want you to say, fall down with Ring Around the Rosies, or I want you to say, you know, star if we're seeing a twinkle, twinkle little star. That would be great, but for so many of our kids, just attending to that routine and just looking at you and smiling during peekaboo and anticipating that you're going to pull the blanket off during peekaboo. You're doing those same activities, but you're just focused on lower level prerequisite goals rather than always that expressive goal. And so my point is you may be doing a lot of the same things that you've already done. You're just going to change your focus so that the, that your social goals and your receptive goals come, they pay, they come before and they're just as important as helping a kid learn to communicate with signs, pictures, or words. We've got to lay the foundation. So that's how I try to answer that question with sometimes it's not the activity that you're changing so much. It's just your focus with making it about following directions or making it about that the child stayed with me and he liked it and he want, he in some way let me know that he wanted to do it again rather than running away or me having to, um, you know, as we would say in the Deep South, hog tie him so that he would sit and, and participate, you know, so that enjoyment piece is there. It's shared enjoyment. So that's the answer that I've tried to give because I do think a lot of people, you know, start really thinking about, okay, now, so how are my sessions going to look? How will it be different? And, and, you know, adding social games is always a good idea. If you've never played those things before, if you don't, if you really need some directions, uh, the very first uh, therapy manual that I wrote, Teach Me to Play With You, is great for that. It walks you step by step by step through how to play a lot of those little games that you probably already know, but again, to break your goals down into little steps so that they're achievable and so that you can talk to moms and dads about that so they understand 
what you're looking for when you're playing and that it's not always about talking. And, again, for some parents we have to say that over and over and over. But that's kind of the answer that I've tried to give, and I think that's what it's what makes most sense to me. Sometimes I might be doing the same activity that I'm doing with another child that the goal is expressive, but I'm looking at it a little differently and I'm looking for different responses for the child to consider um, progress or success or, you know, woohoo, he did it. For some kids that's just, you know, a look or attention or, um, you know, following a twinkle. command versus. You know, you know I like that twinkle. I'm always going to yeah. put a twinkle in their eye. <laughs> that must be a northern thing. We northerners <laughs> like the twinkly eyes. Oh, and I Laura, love that, too. It is that whole body. It's that whole yeah. body participation. You yeah. just see him light up, and, and you know, oh, he likes this. You know, it's not that he says, right. woo-hoo, do it again, but he's right. with you. He's, you've got, even if it's just a slight little grin, but the eyes are bright, and you say, aha, he likes it. And I do think, Laura, I've had some really pretty highly educated parents that I've had to, you know, Talk about this, and then talk about it again, and then talk about it again. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's, you know, parents get they cling to. I want them to talk. I want them to talk. I want them to talk. And we go in, and oftentimes the service coordinator says, uh, you know, mom's really concerned about talking. And you know, aren't we all? We are all agree right. about that. It's terribly important. However, if a kid really isn't anywhere near ready to talk. A lot of times parents don't necessarily recognize those missing pieces and they really right. need to be reminded and help to better elicit those desired responses because it's really just putting the cart before the horse. If we're all mm-hmm. sitting around talking about talking and this kid really isn't responding much at all to what you say or isn't really engaged socially or isn't playing functionally with beginner toys or, you know, there are all these big old gaps that we've got. And sometimes parents just need to be told over and over as nicely as possible, yes, we're going to get to talking. However, before we get to talking, you know, and I think once they see it, and, and it's a good idea to point out this is the look we this is the response we right. do want this is right. the response we don't want you know right. I've lost them it's okay to say that you know yeah totally you loved this last week but this week he doesn't do we yeah. know why no yeah and I think narrating out loud for parents as you go through this session is really important. And I've tried to point that out this fall in the video clips with, okay, you know, saying something like, did you hear what I just said there? I didn't really say that for the kids' benefit. I said that for mom's benefit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where our parents, too, get their most important information. It's not after you've finished the session and you're on your way. You know, you're either sending them out the door or you are leaving their home when, when you get the best, um, those aha moments for parents is right in the middle of an activity when you say this worked because or this didn't work and here's why and so that you're really explaining what you're doing so they can get that and they can start to think about those kinds of things in the middle of 
of when they're doing the same activities with children. And so I think that's really, really important, like you said, to tell parents what you're thinking and to show them and say, this is exactly what we're looking for. This is joint attention. Look at him. His eyes are sparkly. He's totally with me. He's not trying to run away. I'm not working that hard anymore. He's got it. And so, again, you're pointing that out so that they can start to see that progress, too. And that has to happen even in really simple games like peekaboo. When a child is wiggling under the blanket and you were saying, oh, she remembers she remembers this game from last time. Do you know what, why that's important? That's because she's developing cognition. Cognition is a part of memory. And guess what? We ha- Or memory is a part of cognition. And we have to have cognition. We have to have her learning and thinking before she's ready to talk. And so you're telling parents those things and you're explaining what you see and you are giving them reasons for things. Now, don't just shoot from the hip. Don't just make up any old thing. I don't think therapists really do that, but sometimes in our nervousness to explain things, sometimes we, uh, I don't know, maybe this is just me. Earlier in my career, I might, you know, look at the glass as half, not even half full, as three-quarters full. (laughs) Or to the tippy top full when I really should have been a little more objective or not quite as um, reading into things. Uh, so don't be, don't don't give uh, false hope or hope is not the right word. Don't read so much into every single thing. You know you don't want to do that with parents so that they again get some unrealistic expectations, but at the same time you want to tell them what you're thinking and tell them what's going on and what you're hoping to accomplish so that they understand you, so that they get what you're working on. Does that make sense? It does to me. And, Laura, here I am with my disclaimer already. I, I I went out on a limb and said, I've had some highly educated parents. And the reason I said that is because, well, one, I have had some highly educated yeah. parents who didn't understand some of those basic things. Me too. Um, but I know you have. Um, I guess it's, you know, and I still to this day struggle with this because sometimes I think, well, I'm not, that, I can't say that's obvious, but... Oh, a couple years ago, I had a mom with a Ph.D., and she was, you know, really, really mega smart, way smarter than I am. And I would say these really um, what seemed like obvious things, and and she would just say, I didn't realize that. Oh, thank you. Oh, and I thought, okay, if she's not getting this, then apparently this isn't. I think sometimes when you do this and you do this and you do this, we think, oh, this is obvious. Anybody who's ever changed a diaper would know this. And the right. fact is that mm, not really, you know. Some exactly. things, it seems like almost one of those instinctive things, and it can't necessarily be easily taught. Um, it can be taught, but sometimes it needs to be said and reset and revisited and reset and and you know pointed right. out again and again. And so I don't mean to you know whether the parents are educated or not is probably not terribly relevant, but. I guess it was my biggest shocker when I had this highly educated mom who who didn't really understand until, and once I finally had my aha moment, I think I got a lot better about tr- tr- reminding myself, don't be afraid to say it. She's not offended by it. She really wants right. to be reminded of these things. She needs to be reminded of these things. And I think our sessions went a lot better after that because this was a kid exactly. who did have social 
issues, who did have cognitive issues. Who, and, of course, she came into first step saying, I want him to talk. And there were right. lots of things that we needed to address before he was ready to talk. Exactly. So, and she, and she did to... eventually get it. Well, and I think, too, it's the way that you're saying it. And if you're scared to say something to a parent because you think it's going to be offensive, you might say, gosh, I just I want to tell you this, but I so hope you're not offended, and let's talk about it, and let's talk about why. I would want to make sure you understand it. And, again, I'm not trying to insult you or offend you in any way. And I've started a lot of conversations like that or realized quickly, oh, boy, I better back it on up and include that mm-hmm. with um, talking about it. But more often than not, if, if I don't think we offend parents. When we're trying not to offend parents, you're not going to offend parents. It's when you're too flippant about it or condescending or judgmental, that's when parents are offended. It's not when we're saying, look, let's just boil this down to the very basics to make sure we're on the same page. And I think parents appreciate that. And then they can say, oh, I know that. And then you'll know well, good, I'm glad to know that because here's what else I have to say. And so then you kind of work forward when everybody knows the same thing. But I have had it happen like you, Kate, where I just kind of assume a mom knows something and then I don't say it or teach it outright. And then several sessions later or, you know, embarrassingly months later, she'll tell me something or she'll say something like, now I realize or she'll say, I, I really learned this when I read this book or looked at this website or, you know, whatever it would be. Right. And I would think, man, I wish I just would have said it. Why didn't I just say it? Why didn't I just go there? You know, right. you kind of feel like, you kind of feel like, um, gosh, you know, that, that's my fault that I didn't really reiterate that. And, and heaven really knows I've had sure. that experience because yeah. I, I still to this day struggle with it. I think I slowly get better. Maybe by the time I retire, I'll really be good at these conversations. <laughs> but, you know, it's hard. And, you know, one yeah. other thing, Laura, is that when you do establish real realistic expectations on the parent's part and you begin to refocus their attention on those prerequisite skills that the child is lacking, then regardless of what the IFSP says or not, because sometimes we come in and it already says, Johnny will use 50 words, and um, there you are. But when they realize what the building blocks really look like and what those expectations um, should realistically be, then they begin to see success long before they hear those words that we all very much want to hear. But when she realizes, oh, he has to be engaged, he has to be responsive, he has to make eye contact, he has to understand how to play with this simple toy, he has to imitate those, yes, 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 yes. And when they begin to get him, even if he hasn't said boo or more or eat or go, at least they know he is getting better. Right. Right, and they're measuring progress like you measure progress, and then everybody's on the same page. So, yeah, right. I think it's great. I do think those are hard conversations to have, but they get easier with practicing with time. So right. you just have to make yourself have them and make yourself go ahead and do that parent education piece um, and, again, just kind of trudge ahead with that. And so that's that. All right, let's move on to the next question. Let's. 
This happens a lot. They'll say, what do I do about kids that I see at daycare? How do you increase that communication and participation with the, with parents? And you know, my standard answer now is I'll, I'll communicate with the parent in the way they want to be communicated with. If that's a phone call, you make a phone call. If that's an email, you do an email. If it's leaving a note there, if you keep seeing your same folded-up piece of paper in the backpack week after week that nobody's read it a week later, that is not an effective way to communicate. Now, that may be your only way to communicate, but if mom is not getting that message, you just got to figure out how you can best share that information. I haven't treated a kid at a daycare in a long time because my practice has totally changed. I'm getting to see kids now in my new office. Um, and so, my again, my office previous years, so with daycare, I just really learned to do what I had to do to communicate. Bottom line, though, can you make a parent prioritize their child's therapy? No. And, again, sometimes we get a little bent out of shape about that. But here's what I always would remind myself. At least he's in therapy. At least she did that or dad did that. They could not be getting services at all. And goodness knows in daycare, sometimes we could go in and, you know, truth be told, screen the kids and pick up three or four more new little friends <laughs> because there are other kids in the class who need it too. But you can't make a parent do that, but you do need to respect them in that they are on somebody's caseload, and that is a good thing. And there are really children who show up woefully unprepared for preschool and kindergarten, you know, in public school, and at least the mom has done that. So sometimes we just need to give parents a break. I really would try to get parents to meet me at daycare or do some of the sessions at home. Kate, you talk about that a lot. You have some kids that you split. You see sometimes at daycare and some at home, right? I do. Um, yeah. And how do you make that work? How do you convince parents to do that? I, I don't have any magic wand for that, Laura. Some parents just express more of an interest initially, and I am always very accommodating when they say, do you think you could come in the afternoon to my home? Usually I say not every week if because what they really right. mean is 5 o'clock or something. Right. And as I said, I'm close to retirement, and I'm getting tired by 5 o'clock, but yeah. I can do it once a month, you know. Right. And Typically, parents are very satisfied with that. It doesn't really right. have to be every week. And frankly, right. most kids are not at their best at 5 o'clock either. So yeah. I'll do it, but really it works best if I just – or I'll see them first thing in the morning at 8 o'clock, and I'm good at 8 o'clock. So right. then they can meet me at the daycare, or I'll meet them at home if they prefer at 8 o'clock. Um, I'll yeah. do what, you know, within reason, what I'm physically able to do to include them. I love parents who want to see it, want to know what's going on, want suggestions. And as exactly. you said, there are some who really, whether it's due to their own circumstances or where they are, you know, in their lives, they, they want their kid in therapy, but they're not really that motivated to be a part of it. And if you've tried and it's not working, I pretty much say that's the way it is. So. That's what I do, too. And some therapists, you know, will, again, kind of get bent out of shape about that and say, well, I'm just going to have to give them to another therapist who can put up with that or whatever. Okay, if that's your line in the sand, that's your line in the sand. I don't know that it necessarily has to be that way. But, again, that's the great thing about our jobs. We get to make some of those decisions ourselves with uh, what parents will do 
what parents won't do. After 2008, when we put the DVDs out, it was really easy to, I had a couple of parents, even after I filmed that first DVD, Teach Me to Talk, who, um, I remember this one mom in particular, I was able to give her that DVD and her watch it, and boy, she got really on board with therapy after that point, the point that her little guy is in some other subsequent DVDs, but before then I didn't have as much buy-in with her. She really didn't get what we were doing. She didn't get how therapy looked. She didn't get that it was play-based. She just, she didn't get it. And that's, you know, not her fault. She didn't know. And she had a super demanding job where she was on someone else's payroll. She was not the boss. She couldn't control when she came and when she went. And that's, you know, another you know, when you have a mom who has an eight to five job and they're they're you know pretty much punching the time clock um, and don't have a lot of vacation, they're young or, or no an eight to seven there. or six seven to seven job. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, like I said, normally if I if a parent really does want to be a part of it, and I say, okay, what's going to work for you? First thing in the morning, I try and sell first thing in the morning. But if for some yeah. reason sometimes kids don't get up early enough. I have one right now where I see him at home during the week. Dad is a stay-at-home dad, but Mom wants to be a part two, but she works full-time. We tried early morning. The kid really, he was up, but he was barely up, and he really wasn't. So then I said, okay, I'll come once a month (laughs) or once every couple weeks, and, you know, whatever I can swing, and now I do late afternoon. So she's feeling like she's a part of it. And yet I go most of the time during the day when the kids, because he's really not great at 4 o'clock either, but I do it yep. because she wants me to. You know, it's yeah. like, well, exactly. you got to balance yeah. all the variables. So we're, you know, yeah. it's working. He's doing, he's making progress. Everybody's happy, at least I believe they are. So you just got to do, and I still use that old form from Indiana, that face-to-face summary sheet that is in duplicate. Uh-huh. I always leave that. Yeah. Um, I've had situations where the parents were divorced or whatnot. A lot of times I'll I'll email both the parents, whether, you know, regardless of who has the kid that week, just in case right. there's something that came up. That was right. kind of the arrangement with them. You know, you just troubleshoot and see what works. But at the end of the day, there are always going to be some parents who really are satisfied with their note. They don't necessarily want you to call them. Right. You know, I mean, you can try, but you start to get a vibe after a while, like, you're bugging me, you know. <laughs> I know. They don't take your call. You just leave a voicemail. And with those yeah. parents, just leave a voicemail. Just right. say, you know. Call me back if you have any questions. And if they don't exactly. ever call you back, you have to assume they don't really want further input and you've tried. So that's all you can and do. And that's all you can do. Yeah, that's all you can do. And you don't, you know, get all riled up about it. Just let it go and do the best you can um, because for every parent like that you'll really have 10 parents who are the other way you know who right. I, I most often got or get parents that email me a bazillion times who call me a bazillion times and who I want to say hey let's communicate a little bit less okay <laughs> and I'm almost kidding about that but you know what I mean so you right. do what you can and when somebody really wants your help Pour all your love and attention and energy into that family um, because they really need you and want you and, and want to hear what you have to say and kind of, you know, just do what you can. Do what you can. All right, that was that one. Let's move on to this one. 
This has this has come up, maybe not every conference, but it's pretty frequent where a therapist will ask something. They'll say something like, I have a kid that's always sounds sick. Or I have a kid that can't really direct airflow out of her mouth. Or I have a kid, you know, and anything, any kind of question that would boil down to this is a medical problem. And so what do you do with that? You talk to the parents about, referring their child on to, it may just be starting with the pediatrician with, gosh, he always sounds sick. And we know, you know, the fancy term for that is hyponasal or hyponasality. That's always structural. It's either, you know, their adenoids are flowing throughout their whole little heads or, you know, they're, they have allergies, so they have constant post-nasal drip back there, or they're congested or something. We can't fix that as therapists. That's a medical intervention, and we can't take the kids to the doctor either. So you just have to talk to mom about it, talk about the things that you think that it might be, say, and be really careful to say, I well, I'm careful. I don't care, you know, what you do. But I always say, I don't know this for sure. I don't have a little scope that I can look in his nose and see. But I think there's something medical here that we need somebody on this because we are not going to make this better here at home. And so, again, you make the referral. Uh, and sometimes that might mean that you jot down a little handwritten note to go listen to the doctor. If you have enough time to shoot mom an email, she can print that and take it with her because sometimes doctors need something to go on. Kate, you had that really interesting situation um, in the past couple of months where you had that little guy that we were talking about that we decided might have velopharyngeal insufficiency, meaning that his palate in the back didn't make good enough contact for to get a lot of sound variation. And so you were great about talking to that mom about that. We talked about that on the show already, right? I think so. Yeah, and she did end up taking her to the girl to the ENT, and the ENT that she saw didn't know a lot, but consulted with another gal in the practice, and then I ended up speaking to her on the phone, and really it came down to they wanted to scope her, but the kid had to be uh, awake and aware enough to be able to talk while she was scoped. And mm. I said, oh, oh, boy, doctor, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> this little girl has... The doctor wouldn't have known. She wouldn't have known that had you not told her. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. So um, she was going... She wanted the child to see her directly in six months, which I told the mom. We Actually, I saw her for the last time today, and I was reminding of her, her of that today. It's about five months now. You really need to follow up with that. Um, and apparently there's some kind of radiographic testing that they can do that is not as definitive, but it does um, at least indicate. Or, yes, yeah. and so she was saying she didn't even know too much about it, but she, in the meantime she was going to talk to another doctor who was knowledgeable nice. about this radiographic test because this little girl, she has a diagnosis and you know, I don't think there are too many typically developing three-year-olds who could tolerate, okay, uh-huh. I'm going to stick this tube down your throat and you're going to talk. You know, I mean, my yeah. kids were always 
really good about going to the doctor, but I think that would have freaked them out at that age. And this yeah. little girl has a lot of kind of irrational fears about funky things. And, you know, and, and when I was talking to her mom, she said, oh, she freaks out every time she goes to the doctor, regardless of what they do. There's no right. way. And I said, yeah, I think it's going to be quite some time. And the doctor knew that she was certainly on the young side, but, you know, she was able to kind of come up with an alternative way to maybe get at the same thing or at least get a pretty good idea that that's what they were looking at. And so hopefully in six months they'll do the radiographic test because I'm pretty sure that's her situation. <laughs> she was but, always hypernasal. She couldn't even really, even when she laughed, it's like <clears throat> this weird in her nose, mm-hmm. very, very bizarre, you know, she couldn't get any, only bilabial sound she had was M, didn't matter what little tricks to get a P or B, right. nope, nothing. Well, and I think the reason she had M is because M is really a nasal sound. Mm-hmm. And so, so you get that. You know, that yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, the point about this is when you think there's a medical issue involved or when you think that it could be something beyond your scope of practice, refer, 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 refer. Ultimately, you cannot make the parents do it, though. You just have to give them the information and see that it, you know, that they are able to make a decision based on you saying, this is what I really want you to do, and here's why, and here's how it relates to communication development. And so you're just giving them that information and, and then they make their own deci- decisions um, beyond that. That's the same thing with alternative things like changing a kid's diet, you know, trying gluten-free, casein-free. Those are things that we know are out there, that we have some pretty good anecdotal stories usually with, with our own experience with children on our caseloads. That like supplements, like fish oil, and that gets food, whatever you want to call it. But you know, are we really able to definitively say that's going to work, or have a parent choose that? You know, I never want a parent really doing that because I said so. Now, I might casually bring that up and say some other parents have seen some good results with this. You you want to check this out. You want to talk with your doctor about it. You want to do your own research. I'm just pointing you in the right direction. But ultimately, you are this child's parent, and you make the decision about that. And, again, I don't really feel like um, that's within my particular area of expertise, those kind of alternative treatments, but I can certainly bring them up to the point that a parent can decide, yes, that's for me, or no, that's not. And ultimately, we have to respect their decisions because, for one thing, not all of those alternative things work for every kid, and secondly, we don't get to choose. We don't get to decide that. We're not the, the the you know the parents on that. So that's another thing that comes up. But when when you're making those, when you start to hear some of those things or think you know this is kind of an odd characteristic this child has, refer them on. And I think I said this a few weeks ago about PT and OT. You know, and this comes. This is our final question of the day. When somebody will say, "Regs have changed." So that kids aren't going to be able to get, you know, whatever service I think they need, what do I do about that? You know, unless you're able to really control your level of service, you still have to tell parents 
bottom line what your treatment recommendations are going to be, and then parents figure out how to make that happen. Because sometimes, well, in our state, um, let me just say this. And we talked about this at the beginning of the show. States, you're still able to get a full team of therapists where everybody gets to see the kid once a week. In most states, the funds are not there. So early intervention programs have been um, significantly altered so that kids don't get the same level of services. Does that mean that we still shouldn't say to a mom, that, gosh, I really want her to have OT and here's why? And, and, Again, some therapists are scared about that because they're saying, well, then we're, we're going to have to, you know, our program's not going to be able to provide it. I don't know that I could really say that they need a service that, that we're not going to be able to provide. And school therapists are really hand-tied with, with this kind of situation all the time, with not being able to, to provide the intensity or the frequency that they think a child would need. But I still think that we need to make those recommendations and say, now, our program eligibility requirements or, you know, whatever, you're going to have to look outside our program for this level of service. You know, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I don't not agree with it. And so I'm just telling you, as the provider, I think you should pursue blah, 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 blah service um, and then, you know, just kind of let a parent figure out how to get that service or how to pay for that. And I think some some therapists feel really shy about talking about those outside referrals, don't you? Yeah. I do. Yeah. But you have to kind of say it. You have to kind of know, um, you know, what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. But I think ethically we have to make those recommendations. The other thing that happens is that a therapist might say, you know, our regs have changed and, you know, I can't qualify this little guy for therapy but he needs to, he needs speech therapy. What do I say? And that's when you say our program eligibility is this, and his his score was that. But he just he is still not falling, um, you know, within the realm of typical development, or he's still not at an age appropriate level. And even though we can't see him, here are some other options for you in our community so that they know just because he doesn't meet the criteria for your program that you're not really saying that everything's right with the world and that, you know, he's going to be fine uh, because that's just as misleading to parents. But I know therapists feel like they have to walk the line on that because they, they feel very hypocritical and saying, well, he needs therapy, I just can't be the one to do it. So you've got to figure out how to say that and how to make those referrals. I'm going to chime in there on that. Do you have anything to say about that? That would be a big no. Huh? <laughs> well, I was going to say something, then I thought, nah, I better not. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> oh, gosh. Self-censorship. That's that Every once in a while, I do have a filter. Not every time, for heaven's sakes, but every yeah. once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, I was going to say. Don't say it. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Well, it's not that. I, I don't know. It's just my opinion, which is everything I say pretty much. But 
I was going to say that in Kentucky, because there is a limit to how much kids can be seen, and by that I mean basically it's an hour and a half a week max, and for some kids that's ample amount, and for other kids that is really not enough of anything, let alone all disciplines, you know, for significant global delays. I'm sorry, I don't think that's enough, but... I was going to say that there have been times when I ended up on larger teams and I have point blank said to the mom, maybe it's me you need to get rid of because I think sometimes that with the best of intentions, we end up with teams with all these various providers and and the kid isn't really being seen enough by anybody. And it's kind of like, well... You know, if somebody has to go, you know, either go with me or go with your weakest. You get rid of your weakest link, or who do? You, which is your right. biggest area of concern for your child? I mean, there are various ways to determine what the best team looks like. But in the right. good old days, if they had a gross motor delay, we got a PT. If they had sensory issues or fine motor concerns, we got an OT. And if they had parent cognitive issues, oh, we got a DI or maybe some social stuff. Get a DI. Oh. Communication, we got speech. And pretty soon we've got four players on a team. I don't think it happens nearly as much here anymore because I think people are beginning to realize that isn't necessarily the best way to meet a kid's needs or a family's needs. It still happens some, but I don't think when it first started, everybody went right to, well, they've got gross motor concerns, get a PT. And for some kids that's absolutely appropriate. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's a matter of, what are the what are the concerns? What are the delays? What are right. the parents' right. primary concerns? Um, and I think that people are balancing that. And by people, I mean service coordinators, really, because they're kind of the people in there, and also the people doing the primary level evaluations, the first people in there. I think they're not as quick to say, "We need everybody. We need the full complement of providers." And like I said, there have been times because really. As much as I like to think I'm good at what I do, if we've got a PT on board and an OT on board and a speech therapist on board, you know, unless one of those, particularly the the speech therapist, unless the speech therapist isn't um, terribly well-versed in that particular child's issues or isn't just, you know, a stellar speech therapist, but if they're good and mom's happy, I might very well say, get rid of me because you're just giving me, you know, I'm not seeing a much. And really, if you've got a good PT speech, OT or whatever, maybe OT speech, there's not much I can add beyond that. You know, I'm as much as I like to think I'm good, I'm. they know what I know in a lot of instances sometimes they know more than what i know in a lot of instances so i just say you know cut me or rethink the balance of how this is going because i do think sometimes it gets split into so many pieces they can't remember people's names let alone what we said you know you know i don't think yeah i don't think that's yeah and i don't think that's good for parents either i don't think that's good for parents either yeah and but here's here's what i'm talking about when the child desperately needs speech and you're in a state like ours or like Missouri or like somewhere else or Alabama where they really have a bare bones program, you're thinking he still needs speech, you've still got me, 
But guess what? He needs OT. My thing is you may have to refer outside your program. Parents may have to figure out if they're on Medicaid, if they're on state assistance. They're going to perhaps have to find a provider or a clinic or an office or whatever and have them get OT outside of your state program or get PT outside of your state program. And a lot of us are reluctant to make those referrals until the kid gets to be free because they don't want to it to appear that their program is not meeting the child's needs. And, again, this would not have been a discussion really as like we do now in the 90s and early 2000s because kids could see everybody, but therein lies the problem. The funds aren't as available as they were then. <laughs> and so you've got to really, though, not be scared to say we might have to look outside the program for additional help and I, I think now Kate I really because I only see kids that are private paid <laughs> it's easier for me to kind of say that because and think about that because I know for a long time I might have thought oh gosh nobody's able to do private pay nobody's going to do that yes they do they're able to figure out a way to do it able to budget it able to you know or well, yeah but it can be really hard Laura because I think that and I could be wrong about this I know it was the case in Indiana and I have heard things through the grapevine that lead me to believe there's something here. When a kid is in first steps, when a kid is under three, a lot of the agencies that provide service to those kids, to the birth to three population, and here we call it first steps, if they provide early intervention services, they are contractually bound not to take those kids as private pay kids or insurance kids or... Well, and that would depend on the state that you live mm -hmm. or wherever. But even even earlier in my career, even 10 years ago, there might be kids who were seeing me for speech or kids who were going to come into my play group for speech who also did outside speech right. with, just to get an additional second or third visit in a week. And there are certainly, you know, now I get the opportunity to see kids from all over the country, that they are certainly getting speech where they live locally, but I'm the, the gravy, the add-on, the what right. else can we do? And so my point is, you know, not everybody can do that, not every parent can do that, but it's not up to us to really figure out how to make that happen. When we see that that needs to be the case, we make the referral and then let the chips fall where they may because that's again, what our professional opinion is for what that kid needs. A lot of people won't refer a kid on for an additional assessment to get a diagnosis if they think, oh, they don't have insurance and I don't know if our state's going to pay, and I'm not talking about Kentucky. I'm talking about what other people have said in other states. Our, our state's not really paying for that kind of stuff anymore, but I don't really want to not say it, that I don't really want to refer them. Do you see what I mean? They're kind of making those financial decisions, and we can't do that. We've got to just be able to say, I'm concerned about this, and, and if I were you, or, you know, this is the recommendation that I want to make, do with the, that information what you will. It's up to you, but I just want to let you know what might need to happen so that we're, we're not caught in that place where we don't make a referral that needs to be made from an ethical standpoint. you know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I don't see any harm in saying it. Whether or not they're able to act on it or they choose to act on it is another thing. But Exactly, and that's not up to us. Right. And I, yeah. I 
guess I fr- more frequently make that suggestion once they're moving on to school. And it's not yeah. a thing. It's not a thing about. It's not a financial thing. It's just the point where in their treatment plan you would think it would be necessary at that point. Right. Is that what you're right. saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they yeah. seem to understand that, that they're not as going to get even, they don't get as much individual therapy in school as they get even in our program that has been cut back quite significantly. Right. So Exactly. You know, then they realize, yeah, and see, that's where I've had some kids where they tried to go to agencies that provided first step services, and as long as the kid wasn't first steps, they say, no, we can't take them. And I think it is a contract thing. Well, and it could be, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, there's nothing we can do about that kind of situation. Right. But, That's why after three they can, but before three. Yeah. And I don't know. Or you may be going different. to, and, or you may just be finding them, a, or not finding them, but as recommending to mom, saying, well, then why don't you look outside the the system of people that would provide that but then you get into people that specialize in itty bitty kids, right. and you have a school age <laughs> therapist trying to treat, you know, a little kid, and it's not the same. And there, but, you know, there I, are some places here that do that, except we're in a fairly big market. You know, what I mean, relative right. to rural Kentucky or rural wherever, where right. they don't have the facilities that the we access. have. And he, yes, here yeah. you can find alternatives if you're really diligent about it. I right. suspect if you weren't in a fairly large metropolitan area it'd be a lot harder to do but still if you really feel like they need it you got to say look in a perfect world i think your child would benefit from xyz and hopefully you can make that work exactly and that's my point is that we just let parents make those decisions based on what they know and their ability to get that done rather than us kind of holding back when uh because of whatever train of thought we're kind of buying into. You have to recommend what a kid needs, period, and then see how see how it can work out from there. And, you know, we could talk all, all day long about that, but it is the end of another show. And, and <laughs> we didn't so get to talk about the toys. I want to I talk know, about our the toys. Favorite, our favorite thing, you know what, we'll do that week after next. Next week we're having um, Catherine Grun on, and, again, I, I hope I'm saying her name correctly. She'll correct us next week. Uh, From My Baby Compass is on next week to talk about her product and just really about even moms with typically developing children or with children who may not even qualify for us, what they can do to stimulate language development. And again, her she's a birth to seven person, so you know, seven-year-olds to us are Ancient. They're old. So, yeah, oh, they're big. So um, I think it'll be a fun show. And she was really fun when I met her, Ashley. So that's next week. And the week okay. after that, maybe we'll pick back up with some of these toys. And I sent you some emails yesterday in my, or maybe it's Saturday, when I was doing some online shopping for me for Christmas. This is when I always update my stash of toys and call it a Christmas present. Wink, yeah, wink, Santa wink. Santa brought them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these $300 worth of toys, yeah, these are for Christmas. So I was talking about that or kind of emailing you about that. So you'll have two weeks, Kate, to think about any new toy that you bought that we've not talked about on the show or a toy that we have talked about that you just want to bring someone's attention to. And that will be really fun right before Christmas, too. So we'll do that in two weeks, but next week we'll have Catherine on. 
Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. Hope everybody will join us next week. Bye. Bye.